It's not going to say like everyone gets a pass in society. Quite the opposite. You might have better boundaries after you've resolved some of the emotional charge. Everything you look at, you're looking at through glasses that say on them, I'm not worthy, let's say, right? So everything you're looking at, everything you're experiencing, it, there's some kind of subconscious awareness, I'm not worthy. Please trigger me. I want to know what it is that triggers me. We use addiction to numb, escape, or distract. So if we're not looking to numb our reality or escape from our reality or distract from our reality, if that's not coming up for us, then why do we need to run to addiction? Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, here we go. Sitting here with Schneer, also known as Sam, Schneer Hickson. Before we go with Schneer the whole time, is that correct? Sure. So the, the corporate identity, the religious identity, there's, there's many. So it's actually cool for me that uh, we're having this conversation. This is, I think, your first one you're doing um, publicly in this way. Correct. Indeed. I'm sure you speak a lot and we've had conversations. But, you know, I often talk about my healing journey, mm -hmm. right, and talking about therapy and 12 steps and, you know, all the many places that my healing path has taken. But one of the things that I've never had the opportunity to share just because there was no um, format for it, you weren't on the other end of it, is that outside of a brief stint with therapy when I was 12 or 13 years old, when I got into a fight with the kid in school and uh, the school, school forced me to go to therapy, uh, when I went of my own volition in my early 20s, that came from, I guess, something that you were noticing on your side and our interactions and uh, seeing how, I guess, therapy was helpful in your life. And you said, hey, I think you should, uh, you should check it out. So you, uh, you got me started on the path. So thank you for that. And it's cool to many years later be uh, right here with you. You're very welcome. Because here we are. I think we all play a, a part in each other's lives by divine providence. So that was one of the many divine providences. Amen. And it was one of the many, and I guess we'll talk uh, much more about that. So what um, what uh, what compelled you to to join this conversation? You know, when I extend the invitation and said, "Hey, would you like to do this? You've never done this before. What's why is the time right now?" The time is always now, right? <laughs> the time um, is always now. Not for 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 a long time. I've felt guided to to share, and, and I've helped a number of people who've come forward to me. Um, I've helped myself a lot in my own journey. Um, I've been on a long journey with that. And so um, for a long time, I was thinking about, I, I feel quite um, humble that I, when I write to the Rebbe, I tend to get very clear responses from the Rebbe. And there were many times where I got responses to, to teach more, to share more, to be involved in different communal things. And um, that's so one can of you explain this for people who, because I have listeners who are Jewish, not Jewish, from mm -hmm. Chabad, not Chabad. So if someone is, we're, we can go fully into Jewish concepts. If someone's listening to me, we'll, we'll have conversations about sikhas and Jewish ideas. So Jewish or not Jewish, they become comfortable with those mm -hmm. ideas or they're not listening anymore. So we, you, we can go fully in there. But if we do go to a concept, just to explain it, when you say write the Rebbe, can you explain what this, uh, what this means? Right, so many thousands of people write to the Rebbe regularly. The Rebbe passed away in 1994, I believe. Um, but uh, he left behind uh, a tremendous legacy. 
in a tremendous movement known as Chabad around the world, a uh, very well-known movement, probably the most well-known Jewish movement in the world. Um, and whilst the Rebbe left us, left us uh, as far as his body goes, in spirit, the Rebbe is very much with us. And the Rebbe has been with us uh, throughout that time, the past 25 plus years, I think, at this point. Um, and so there are many people who write to the Rebbe or visit the Rebbe's resting place and ask for guidance um, or feedback as far as what to do or someone needing help with something and they need some spiritual intervention or, or support or guidance. And so the Rebbe, in many cases, um, steps in and provides either guidance or support. Things tend to shift. Some people open up the Rebbe's letters and you find letters that are very clear in the response of what the Rebbe is saying, how to address a situation, how to move forward, or what to do, what not to do. So let me, so let me say this, the primary format, and I don't think this is a new practice, I think it's an ancient practice within Judaism. When someone is looking, has a, having difficulty deciding on something, they'll prepare themselves in some way, right, as if they're going to, to an actual physical interaction with this, with a person, a holy person, and as part of that, write a letter, and then place that letter within a holy book, and the page that they open to, they'll believe, has certain information. And this practice is extended to specific letters that are copied from his responses to other people, so it's an actual letter that someone is getting back, and people will write letters, open to a random book, maybe he has 30, 40 volumes of his published letters, and open to a random page, or sometimes you can do it online, and it can open a page at random, and people have found very direct answers to their questions. Like if you read the question and you read the answer, there's uh, applicability. Yeah, you, can see it. you can see that the, the Rebbe is addressing the, that you're getting an answer. It's, it's essentially, it's a form of divination. It's a form of communicating with the divine. Um, there are forms of communicating with the divine that are more uh, dark, and there are forms of communicating with the divine that, that we call from the side of Kedusha, from the side of holiness. And obviously, the Rebbe being a, one of the holiest leaders of the Jewish nation, it's you're communicating with the side of holiness. And so the, when someone gets a clear response from the Rebbe, um, so that's coming from the right side, from the correct side, from, from the side of goodness. So unlike others, you, you started this by saying that you feel humbled that you've, over the years, have gotten very direct responses, is unlike others who may sometimes be confused by the response and say, how does this relate to the question I was asking? You have been able to um, well, write a letter and get and get what you get what you can interpret as a direct response. Yeah, so there's some sort of clear decision that you're now able to move forward in the world with. Clear feedback, I would say. So it could come in the form of opening up a, one of the Rebbe's uh, letter books of letters. It was Kodesh, that is very familiar to most people in Chabad. Or it could come in the form of suddenly you ask a question to the Rebbe and suddenly a friend randomly sends you a, a letter of the Rebbe that really answers your question. Um, it can come in many different forms, but um, the divine providence in, is, is usually very obvious uh, as to how the response comes, and you can tell that it's a fair response to what you, uh, what, you were, what you were asking or what you were seeking help with. Fascinating. Okay, so as part of that, you have received messages over the years as you should be speaking more, you should be sharing more, you should be out there a little bit more, but you have not done it until now. Right. So, well, I've done it in more private ways, one-to-one, -one, um, individual Understood. people have shown up, but not, not in a public forum. 
I got it. So the the invitation by me felt to you in some way as a, a divine providence in saying that maybe those previous messages of sharing, while it was good one on one, now it's time to do it one on one on many. Yeah, I figured it's a, it's an opportunity. I, I'm I know you, you know me, and so it would be an opportunity for me to um, have this discussion with you and see what comes of it, and hopefully, um, with God's help, it will have a positive impact on people. Pretty awesome. I'm excited to uh, to dive in. So you mentioned a little bit of your own healing path, right? And how, like, primarily you're able to help yourself through this um, process. Can you share? Uh, to the extent you're comfortable, what you what you're referring to? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a in a home that was very chaotic. My mother was very not well, and so that had a whole host of implications for me and for my family. And um, there was a lot of uh, what what many people would call trauma uh, in difficult circumstances, and um, that played out in the family dynamic. It played out in as far as my mother goes, and in my relationship with her. Um, and then when you say your mother was not well, you're referring to mental illness, physical illness, both mental health, mental health. Yeah. Um, so, so my mother was very not well from a mental perspective and, um, that was a significant challenge for our family. Um, and so what tends to happen when you grow up in a home that's chaotic or, or stressful is that some of that chaos and stress follows you into, in, into your adulthood and into other areas of life. And uh, so I embarked on a journey, uh, probably when I was at my first uh, real therapy was uh, at the age of 18, I think, when I was, I was studying in Miami for a year. And so I connected with a the therapist there and started doing therapy. Um, and that was quite powerful as far as doing, uh, doing EMDR, basically, which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's using eye movements to reprogram and resolve uh, old traumas and reprogram, reprogram them and, and reframe them in a more positive way. Uh, using eye movements, which happens to everybody during sleep, to help uh, uh, activate both sides of the brain, the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, and that helps the, the brain, brain to reprocess the trauma in a way that's helpful and healing. I've done a lot of it as well, and I found it to be very helpful, very healing. Right. So EMDR has blown up in recent years, and it's become a lot more popular around the world, and it's a common uh, uh, method, uh, modality, modality, modality. With healing, and uh, definitely recommended for people that are dealing with trauma. Um, but that was the first, the first, uh, my entrance into therapy. Um, and then over the years, I continued to try out different modalities and. Uh, I was really investing a lot of time and energy and, and money into um, trying out different modality, modalities, trying different things that would help me heal at a very deep level. Um, was, was was there something that was perturbing you, an emotional feeling, a behavior, a relationship? Like what was, what was it that you were saying, if you're comfortable sharing, that, okay, this isn't working and therefore I need to embark on a, on, on a path of therapy? Right. So I'm going to speak more generally. So in today's world, I think most people um, have some kind of addiction. It can be something as simple as social media. It could be something as it could be gambling. It could be sex. It could be um, alcohol, food, drugs, alcohol, drugs. There's there's no end. Shopping, shopping, exactly. So uh, I think a lot of us in today's world are are hurting from something, and we seek ways to escape, 
to de to detract ourselves from our from our internal uh, unresolved emotions or unresolved feelings. Um, and so I was struggling with some form of addiction, and that had an impact on myself, obviously, and of course on my family and my, my wife, my children, uh, and my home. And so um, that was something that that came forward for me um, that, that really wasn't working, and that really was. Um, having a very significantly negative impact on my life. And so um, you mentioned earlier that I introduced you to therapy, to, to the therapist when, after you were a child. Um, you introduced me to um, to the 12-step program idea. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spent some time uh, in 12 steps, uh, exploring that, working with that. And um, it was helpful in a number of different ways for me. Um, but I found that it wasn't the ultimate solution for me personally. Um, uh, but but I, I, I definitely did some time there and, and, and worked with the 12 steps and made some, uh, I definitely made progress in my healing there. Um, and then I continued to search and I continued to, to, to work on different things. Um, uh, I would say that over the years, I worked with a lot of different therapists and a lot of different modalities. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the names. There, there were so many different modalities that I that, that you I, already mentioned a few EMDR and twelve steps. EMDR was definitely one of the more powerful ones that I worked with. There's there's, um, there's all kinds of modalities out there that people can can work and can experiment with and try. Um, I read countless books and I tried to educate myself intellectually on all of the different issues that I had seen and experienced and dealt with and all the issues that I was struggling with. Um, and ultimately, if I fast forward to about four or five years ago, um, I discovered a new modality that I went, that I started to really run with and, uh, and work with. And I found that modality to be the most healing and the most, uh, I made the most progress by far uh, using this modality uh, of anything that I had tried previously. Um, I, I, yeah, so I, I definitely think that there is, uh, there is a, there's a room for, for every, there's, there's, there's room and there's a place and a time and place for every modality pretty much. Um, and I think that every modality that I tried, that I worked with was, had its time and place. It was part of my journey. It was part of me making progress in healing. Um, so I don't know if it always makes sense for people to skip some of the other modalities. Like for me, EMDR was where I started and that was very helpful to, to a point, right? And then skip. Fast forward to 12 step that helped me, but then to a point. And then, you know, ultimately, healing is a lifelong journey. Um, growth is a lifelong journey. Uh, no one is perfect and everybody has things to work on. So it's something that you keep moving forward with. But, but I will say that the, the modality and the things that I've been doing the last few years have been, um, have helped me come the furthest by far. And how would you describe the modalities? So, that's a great question. Um, how would I miss? I, I would basically to to to, admit, to to put it very simply, I would say it's using affirmations. Okay, so let's take a step back from me. Um, there's a lot of videos by a guy called Bruce Lipton um, online where he explains basically the idea that in the first seven years of a child's life, they're basically on report. 
their brain waves or the type of brain waves that, that one enters into during hypnosis. And so they're recording and absorbing pretty much everything around them that's happening. And those first seven years, more or less, is what essentially shapes your operating system. It shapes the way you look at life, the way you view life, the way you experience life, what you expect from life, et cetera, et cetera. And so the first seven years of life are really very key and very um, um, foundational. Very foundational for how you, you're going to move forward in life, right? And then, the, so then you have, let's say you, at that point, you program more or less, right? And then you continue to go through life and programming gets added, maybe changed a little bit. Um, but the programming is there and you're going to continue to um, experience life and act out in life based on initial programming that you've absorbed when you're a child. So if a child lives a very stressful life from zero to seven, most likely they're going to live, a, they're going to continue to create a stressful life after that. And so what happens is, is we become um, embedded with a whole host of uh, what, what we call in this framework, irrational beliefs, right? So an event takes place and during that event, the child's in a state of trauma and the child starts to take on beliefs about themselves, right? It could be, I'm not worthy. It could be, I'm not safe um, or anything like that. Um, very wide ranging because there are many different occurrences that take place. And during those, especially during the, the traumatic experiences is where the most negative or the most harmful beliefs become part of your programming. And so one of the, one of the ways I like to say this is that we, we, we interpret our beliefs as facts. Like we stop seeing them anymore as beliefs. If we said they were beliefs, that would, that would, that would already be a big deal. Just to call something a belief, to say I am not worthy is a belief, that's a level of progress. Okay. Um, it feels like a fact at a certain point. Yeah, but I would say, I would also, the way I would describe it is it's like putting on glasses, right? So you everything you look at, you're looking at through glasses that say on them, I'm not worthy, let's say, right? So everything you're looking at, everything you're experiencing, it, there's some kind of subconscious awareness, I'm not worthy, or Correct. I'm uh, I'm not lovable, right? Uh, so, so is the wearer of the glasses aware of the glasses? So usually a child or a young person that's, that's experiencing these things and taking on these beliefs is really in a state of, um, of survival and the state of, uh, of, of coping survival and, uh, trying, just trying to get by. So no, they're not aware that they're taking on beliefs. No, no the average person is right. not aware. They're, right. They're, the, the day we notice that it's a pair of glasses that we put on, like that is a, a pretty healing day. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, that's a that's that was, a right, that was moment a of progress for sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so he that's talks why. about these first seven years, and then the the foundational beliefs that that set in. So and it continues afterwards. It continues afterwards. I would just say that the most maybe the most embedded are the first seven years, because at that point the child's just absorbing, 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 programming their own operating system for life. Um, but then you know events continue to occur, and those events cause additional beliefs to be taken on. Um, so it, it, it just, it's like when you have an operating system and then you get you every month, you get an update, There's a new update to the operating system, some new features that were added. So in this more negativity or more is trauma. Um, so then that's one aspect that we take on these irrational beliefs about who we are and what we are. Uh, the next part of it is judgments. 
right? So we start to judge ourselves as something, right? Let's say in a moment of stress or chaos, we act out towards our sibling, right? We're hurtful towards them. And so we might judge ourselves as hurtful people. We might judge ourselves as bad people in that moment, right? We're gonna have, we're gonna take on some kind of, of judgment towards ourselves for the things that we're doing to when we're acting out in some way or in some way of bonds. So what happens with those judgments is that we then run into other people in the world that are vibrating some kind of similar behavior to what we've judged ourselves for in the past, right? So for example, we we judged ourselves pretty harshly as a child for being hurtful towards our sibling in a, in a moment of chaos or in a moment of trauma. And then we bump into somebody and they do something that reminds us of that feeling. They, they act towards us in a way that's, let's say, hurtful. And then we're like, wow, that guy's so hurtful. Now we're not thinking it. So when we, just, just so we don't um, switch terms and we're using the same one. When you say reminds of that feeling, reminds us of that judgment. You're using it, you're trying to, you're pointing back to the same idea, right? There's a belief about us, I'm not worthy. Based on that, we act out in some way in the world. We hurt mm -hmm. someone else. Mm -hmm. Now there's a judgment about ourselves, a personal judgment and saying, I am a hurtful person. Then later on in life, I run into someone who's hurting someone else. The judgment is another form of belief. It's less about uh, who I am. Well, there's one, sorry, the, 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 the irrational belief is, let's say, something that just, something that, the irrational belief is basically where you believe, you take on a belief, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. You're not judging yourself for it necessarily. You're just, Correct. That's just a belief. That thing that that's who you are. The, the judgment is also a belief, but it's 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 a judgment. You see, you're, you're holding yourself accountable for something, right? You're, you're basically saying, "Oh, I, I hurt people, or I let people down, or I uh, I'm nasty to people." It could be many, there's, there's thousands of different possibilities. But you're basically saying, "I do something," and then you bump into somebody who reminds you of that, who does something that you find to be, let's say, hurtful or nasty, and so you project your own feelings of self-judgment towards that other person. And you say, oh, wow, that person's such a nasty person, right? And it's not that you're just observing that they have an element of nastiness or that they have a part of them that's nasty. You're feeling very judgmental towards them. Right, there's an emotional um, charge. Emotional charge, that, emotional trigger. To that observation. Correct, yeah. it's coming across as a judgment rather than an observation. You can observe yeah. people all day. When you're just observing them, there's no charge, there's no excitement, there's no negativity, there's no heart, there's no uh, there's no lack of compassion towards them. On the other hand, when you're projecting self-judgment, you lack compassion towards them. You, you you're viewing them through the eyes of judgment, essentially. Yeah, I think um, what comes up for me when you're saying that is, you know, when I was in early recovery for my sex addiction. I was also doing the work related to JCW, which was going after uh, people who sexually abuse children. Mm -hmm. And the level of, I still view it the same way, right? I can observe it and say that is an incorrect behavior that someone needs to be held accountable for. That's they're without question. And if someone is unsafe, then certain protections need to be had. But there was a charge that existed when I was feeling a lot more shame around my own sexuality. Right. That's that I don't feel today. That's what you're that's what you're referring to. Correct. Correct. So when you when you forgive yourself and you clear yourself judgments, then you're able to observe the other person and, and try and help them 
have compassion for them, you know, hold for them to, to make progress and to heal. You're not coming from a place of that person's bad, that person's terrible, that person's deserving of this, that, the other. Right, or it may, it, it may come to a similar action, right? It's not going to say, like, everyone gets a pass in society. Quite the opposite. You might have better boundaries after you right. resolve some of the emotional charge. But um, it won't have that, that, that... It won't have that negativity attached to it. It'll be more about the practical consequences or uh, right. addressing the issue. It won't yeah. be evidence. Right. Like, today I find the language around like the dehumanizing language, this person's a monster or it's disgusting or all of those, I find them independent of whether or not it's true. It's, I find them very unhelpful for the, uh, for the conversation. Right. It's for what we're trying to do, this is an unhelpful posture. We're adding a little bit too much spice into the dish and maybe approaching it from just a more clinical, um, like a more clinical approach will get us to the solution we want faster in a more compassionate approach. In a more compassionate approach. So you want to go from looking at the person through the eyes of judgment to looking at the person through the eyes of compassion. And how can you help them, or how can you resolve the situation from a place of compassion? So, and so, what what you're saying here is that in order to arrive at that place of compassion for another person, with whatever they're struggling with, I gave an extreme example, I know, but with whatever it is, it could be judgment over, you know hurting someone, like you said, mm -hmm. you know, this, this person is a hurtful person and there's a negative charge. You're saying that that process goes through us first. Like I, I first have to find the compassion within myself in order to then to be, in order to then be able to extend that to another person. Correct. So if you're feeling judgmental towards them, first fix the inner judgment and then approach that situation with compassion. Is this, um, I had a podcast episode, I called it the value of trigger therapy, which is like when we're triggered, a lot of people say, don't trigger, don't trigger me. And I'm like, no, trigger me. Like, please trigger me. I want to know what it is that triggers me. So not that I get dysregulated and do something crazy, but so that I, I can identify what's going on internally and then begin to resolve those. You're talking about something like that. Not so many people are as, um, are as uh, courageous as you to, to say, please trigger me. I don't necessarily mean it in that way, but suppose we are triggered. Mm -hmm. All right, today, if I'm triggered by someone, and I was, I was triggered last night. Um, I was triggered last night by my wife. Mm -hmm. And the, obviously, the instinct was like some sort of anger, right, towards her. And then I was like, hey, like, there's a thousand people in the world that can make me feel this way. This is much more, what's much more relevant about this matter in front of me is not that she triggered me, but that I was triggered. It's not she, it's I. And then, okay, what is it that triggered me? So this is what you're, you're right. touching on. So an emotionally mature person will have the awareness or the emotional maturity to say, this is about me. I'm feeling this. This is my feeling. And so let me figure out what's going on inside of me before I go and address the other person. Before I go and address, not that I won't address, I may may very well address, but before I go and address, yeah, you want to come in. And you want to address the situation from a place of where, where you're centered, where you're healed, where you're okay, and and where you're not coming from a place of judgment. Because when you're coming from a place of judgment, it's going to be very hard to get that person to work with you, or to feel safe with you. But if you heal it within, 
And then you come to them from a very much more practical perspective, much more, like you said, a clinical perspective, a practical perspective, or through the eyes of compassion, that person is much more likely to feel that energy, that you're coming to them with compassion, or, and you're not coming to just to try to hurt them or, or take revenge on them, et cetera. It's the same with parents and children. When a parent, when a parent is coming at the child with anger, the child isn't going to take the parent very seriously and is probably going to try to rebel in some form. But when the child, when the parent comes with compassion and with care and and, and you know with, with positive intention, so that makes a big difference in how it's received. So did did you finish explaining the um, the framework of Dr. Bruce Lipton? Is it as simple as you just made it, or is there the more? Framework, to it? The framework is not Bruce Lipton framework. I just mentioned Bruce Lipton in the context of the first oh, zero to seven. Yeah. Okay. So I'm he, explained, he, he explains it very well. If you want to look, look him up on YouTube, he explains how that works very well. I've um, come across his name a few times. I'll look at it again. Yeah. Um, so so then so there are so essentially this framework is made up of different parts. So we spoke about forgiving forgiveness of judgments, which, which we can expand on a bit soon. Um, we spoke about uh, uh, clearing irrational beliefs, the beliefs we take on about ourselves, which then we then perpetuate in some form. Uh, as we go forward in life. Um, then there's parts, there's a thing called part, ther part therapy. Um, I'm not familiar with that modality myself, but I understand it has something to do with it. Essentially, um, and this is part of going back to these irrational beliefs, you're going back to the part of you that was traumatized. You're going back to the part of you that was hurt, right? So, for example, you mentioned last, that your wife did something that triggered you last night. So when you feel that trigger and you go inside to resolve it, you can ask yourself the question, when was the first time I felt this way, right? So you re really get into this feeling of how your wife's behavior or words made you feel. And then you, you basically travel back in time. You're asking your subconscious to take you back in time to the, to, to the earliest memory you have of feeling the same way or similar, right? So you can feel where the, where the emotion comes up for you. You can feel it in different ways. You can apply a color to it. And then you ask yourself, you know, when is the first time I remember feeling this way? And then what happens is your subconscious, with a little bit of practice, for those that don't have practice, your subconscious will bring forward a memory. So it may be a memory of you being in a, in a school yard at the age of seven and someone said something similar to you that made you feel very hurt. And so what you you've, is, you've gotten to the point where if you say when was the first time it will bring you to the first time yeah you, uh, when i started that? doing this it, it happened very quickly so uh the first one or two times i asked myself you know we might you know bring forward for me what the first time this came this happened uh, it took maybe 5 10 15 seconds for it to come forward and it could be a memory i haven't thought of in 8 10 15 20 30 years but the memory will suddenly come forward um, and if it takes a minute, it might take a minute, but some, you know, sometimes it can be a little harder to get to it. Or sometimes it'll come up with two or three memories. So you'll be like, oh, I felt that way when I was seven in the schoolyard. And then one second, something happened when I was 12 or so that made me feel that way. So if you, one, one to three, let's say one to three memories will pop forward where you felt similar, right? And so you go back to that event or you go back to that story and you ask that child, that, that part of you, Right, because we're made of many parts, right? Every day we're having different experiences, and those parts of us accumulate into who we are ultimately. But we're asking that part to to you know what came forward for them in that moment. 
So for example, if the child's seven years old in the schoolyard and someone threw something at them and, and told them they're, 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 they're garbage, they may have taken on the belief that they're garbage, that they're, you know, they're just a garbage person. Because if it wasn't true, that guy wouldn't have said it, let's say, right? So you're, you're saying without fail, if there's a situation that triggers you today, you've felt this way before, and it's that original event that's... 100%. That needs, that needs resolution. Correct. It's that part 100% of the time. Um, if, it, if, it, if there was no previous experience at a younger age of that hurt, then it wouldn't land on you the way it did. It wouldn't trigger you. It would land on you as just like, oh, this is interesting. That guy did something or this thing happened and now I'm going to do something about it. You're not all triggered up. You're not hurting. You're not reactive. You're not, you're not triggered by it. You're triggered because something happened in the past that, that that part of you that felt triggered last time in a similar way is not coming forward. A sponsor of mine used to say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. So if you're noticing that you're, if you're noticing that your reaction is somewhat disproportionate to the offense, then you say, okay, where did that come from? That's very accurate. Okay. So, the, so you've been able to do that is to go back to that moment, sometimes several and say, okay, I felt this way. And then what? And then you, you go back to that child. So that child might need to hear that he's not garbage, that he's valuable, that he's worthy, that the person throwing stuff at him and calling him garbage had his own problems from his own home or from his own situation that had nothing to do with you. So what you do is you take the beliefs that were taken on at that time and you clear them as irrational beliefs. So for example, I forgive myself for buying into the irrational belief that I was ever garbage. Or I forgive myself for buying into the irrational belief that that boy throwing things at me and shouting at me had anything at all to do with me. A lot of times children take responsibility for things that other people do or their parents do. Right. Parents divorce, it's, it's notorious. I mean, it's repeated over and over that kids blame themselves Correct. for parents getting divorced. 100%. So, so if, if the child can take, can go, if, if the person can go back to that child who is, let's say, 13 years old when his parents divorced, and tell that child and, and clear that irrational belief, clear the irrational belief that um, they, they were responsible for their parents or that they were in any way to blame for their parents' issues or that their parents' divorce meant anything about them or that it made them worth less. Right? So then so, you'll state that at the end of it, you'll say, I forgive myself for ever believing that I was garbage. So you'll revisit the event and you'll bring forward your, your subconscious, your will bring forward all these different thoughts that you thought at the time, right? For example, um, I caused my parents stress, or I caused my parents to divorce. So I was the, you know, if I would have behaved better, that would have made them not divorce. And you clear that, you verbalize it and you clear it and you say, you know, I forgive myself for buying into that irrational belief, right? So you clear the negative, which is the resistance in your current life. And then, you replace that with positive. You replace it with, when, once you're done clearing any negative thought that comes forward about that event, you can then- When you say clearing, is that a two minute process, a two month process? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so typically for me, any one event was, I'd say between eight to 12 affirmations, eight to 12 things or thoughts or ideas that came forward as needing clearing. Eight or 12 negative, irrational beliefs that then needed to be affirmed in a positive 
way. That needed to be cleared first. First step is clearing the negative. Right? And that'll all happen in that. Right. Okay. So clearing the negative. Like 10, so, 10, 10 to 15 minutes that you sit with yourself and go revisit that trauma. And revisit so literally in one, in, in one sitting, you're finding that you're able to, yeah, to it, clear these. Yeah. You, you're, you're basically thinking through it. Like what did I believe in that, in, at that time? What was coming forward for me? What was, what was I taking on at that time? And different ideas or things will come forward. Sometimes they'll be very obvious ones and sometimes they'll feel a bit more far-fetched, but you know, it came forward for you. Uh, so the first step is to forgive yourself for those self uh, well, we're not getting into judgments now, those irrational beliefs. And there may be also self-judgments. Like if you reacted, let's say that boy hurt you and you took on a bunch of irrational beliefs about that, about yourself, right? But then you took on a bunch of judgments about that person. They're evil, they're nasty, they're disgusting, right? Um, they're crazy, whatever it is. So then you can clear those judgments about yourself. I forgive myself anytime I ever judge myself as crazy. I forgive myself anytime I ever judge myself as nasty. Oh, meaning even if we've extended it to the other person, we then we always bring it back to ourselves. Correct. I find that very often when someone is hurt by someone else, instead of saying like, you know, Jack was not having a, Jack is not safe, let's say. Okay, let's say Jack is not safe. Jack hurt me, Jack is not safe. That's really how we're going to, um, I call it drawing the circle. That's really how we're going to draw the circle around the event. We'll say something more like, all New York kids <laughs> are nasty. Like all New Yorkers are all men or all, you know, I had, a, I know one person who had a, it was a, an employer who had a negative experience with um, a single person who worked for him and then, you know, invest a lot of money and time into the person. They went out and left. And he's like, oh, this is the problem. Never hire a single person again. So, yeah. We can draw the circle in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it could be more. That feels pretty broad. It could be more specific to the person and it could be more general. Sometimes, right. But usually, usually these circles are drawn from simply one one experience. But my, my point is that when someone does that, right, so someone is noticing as they go back into that belief that they may have said like, oh, all New Yorkers are violent. Let's say that was the um, conclusion. So then how does that get flipped back onto to me? What's the judgment that I then need to forgive myself for in your language? I would say in my experience, it's usually more specific to the person. Um, and then it might translate into more general um, judgments about a group of people. Uh, from there, but either way, when you clear that judgment on yourself. And okay, so let's say we said Jack is violent. Okay, not all New Yorkers are. Jack, Jack is violent. violent. Let's say you did both. Jack is violent, and all New, York, all New York kids are violent, right? Okay. So what you do is you go and you clear the judgment towards yourself, you know, because you probably judge yourself at some point for being violent, and you also clear it against Jack. So in my case, I would say I forgive myself anytime I ever judge myself as violent. And I forgive myself anytime I ever judge Jack as violent. And then if you want to extend it to the rest of New York, you would say right. anytime I ever judge New York children as violent or New York kids as violent. And you'll, you'll write this, you'll say this out loud, you'll do it both ways. I, I would say it and then I would write them down so I could repeat them later because repetition helps you to um, embody it and um, really reprogram your subconscious more deeply. Okay, so that, that was my, my earlier question. So it's not necessarily something that's cleared in one sitting. It's, okay, I've identified this belief. I'm able to separate myself from it in some way. 
This wasn't always me. This was a singular event or several events that happened that led me to these conclusions. I'm going to see that as a rational belief. I'm going to let it go. And then recognizing that I've been believing this for 30 years, I may spend a couple of months with this to really clear it. So to be more specific, so essentially the intention when you go into this work is to help you lift and clear this old stuck energy from the past, right? To resolve this unresolved part of you um, and to help them move on. And so you then you, you actually see it manifest in your life today. You see how you interact with other people the next time that thing comes up, for example. So the intention is that you should clear it and you make the biggest step in the first time that you bring them forward and you do the work with what's coming forward for you. Um, the repetition is often necessary because for me personally, three or four or five repetitions is enough to, to be done with it um, completely where there isn't any trace left. Um, but essentially the belief is that every cell of our body has memory and what you believe in your subconscious becomes essentially embodied within you. And when you tell yourself a new updated belief, uh, and you, you know you clear the irrational beliefs and then give yourself a new updated belief to work with, you want to do some repetition to, uh, to embed and, and embody and, and really um, seal the, the new belief in your system so that even your the cells of your body know the, the new truth. And so you embody it, you just act differently when you face similar circumstances. So repetition is definitely um, a powerful tool to the really key component. the key component to 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 uh, make sure it sticks. Some people will re will repeat the affirmations. You know, they'll write them down or the thing, and then they'll repeat them for a week or two weeks. Some people will do it for thirty days, but after a week or two of repeating these new updated beliefs and and, and clearing the irrational beliefs, it should be done. So I want to circle back to how we got into this conversation. So you were talking about being on a path of dealing with something that you've labeled as an addiction. So something with that kind of intensity mm -hmm. and then working with EMDR and working with 12 steps and working with several other modalities, some which uh, you went into and some which you didn't, but at some point in time encountering this modality, whatever name we would have for it, affirmations or parts therapy or whatever else, mm -hmm. and you finding uh, a different level of healing here than you have found in everything else previously. And that's not to discount right. them because they could have been a building block for this, but there's been something really integral about this. Right. I like to say that, that, that well-known well -known saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? So essentially for me, this framework came forward once I had done all the work that I had done previously. So everybody has their journey and everybody has their, their, their the way that they make progress in healing. But for me, this, this method has been by far the most transformational for me. Got it. And and you continue to incorporate it into your life? Daily. This wasn't a therapist that you necessarily went to. This was this was a modality. No, this was, a therapist told me this modality. It was a therapist um, that that took a spiritual psychology approach to things. Um, and she worked through this framework with me, taught me this framework, and gave me the tools that I needed to work through my stuff. Um, this is a book of hundreds of pages of affirmations that I did over three years, let's say, two to three years. You um, wrote that out? I, I, well, I typed it out and, I, and, right. and then I printed it into a book so I could use it from time to time to go over them. 
um, most of the stuff that I go through here now, I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I used to believe that stuff about myself. Right. Um, but you know, this is how I did the repetition. So I kept adding to the, the word document, which I then printed. It's, it's, it's amazing that you have the, that you have that, but I'm glad you showed it. Can you show it one more time just in case someone missed like the thickness of it? Like the, yeah, it's, it's a like lot what of, we're to, what, right. A what lot we're of, talking about is not, and I'm, I'm really glad you showed this because I think someone listening to this can get the idea that this was something that was arrived at. Okay. I'm a couple therapy sessions. I'm going to slap things around for 10 or 15 minutes. A memory is going to come up. I'm going to say a few affirmations and voila, I'm going to feel better. Like, no, this, just the amount you typed up speaks to the, the hours you've devoted to this. And this was after many other therapeutic modalities. Like healing is not a side project. It's something that we need to uh, confront with all of us. Right. So I would say I was devoting about three to four hours a week to uh, really to, to, un to reprogram my entire life, more or less. Um, my entire childhood, my teenage years, my marriage, um, and everything that I had accumulated over the years, it was about deprogramming, deprogramming the negative and reprogramming with positive. And so, and, and the more I did the work, the more I got to see things manifest, meaning I got to see how things played out differently. I got to see how I reacted differently. I got to see how my self-confidence transformed itself tremendously. Um, I dropped the things that I was struggling with addiction for many years. I dropped them completely. And that's where I was going to go to. I'm glad you brought that up. I became, I became free of that through using these affirmations and clearing everything around them because every, every addiction, and I think most people are addicted to something today. Every addiction is, so I'm not coming from, I'm not saying that from judgment, but every addiction is, there is, there are legs to that table. There are beliefs, there are thoughts, there are things that, that we have in our system that we're running from or we're escaping from or we're trying to avoid or, or trying to numb or, or trying to, you know, for example, for many years, I struggled with food. And when I started working on that, I discovered that food was a source of comfort for me. When I was a child and things were really tough, food was a go-to comfort. It was a form of safety, it was a form of comfort. And so when I undid that connection between food, like I cleared the belief that food is a source of comfort, or that food is a, is a source of safety, or that food helps me to resolve problems or whatever it is, right? And so as I cleared those underlying beliefs and thoughts, um, the food issue became diminished and, and became a non-issue. So it, it, it just, um, as you work through the underlying beliefs, the underlying issues, then the need for the addiction and the need for that substance or the need for the gambling or the sex or whatever it is, just it just peters away, it goes away because you don't need that thing anymore to give you what you thought what you thought you were getting from it. Right. The description I've used is we use addiction to numb, escape, or distract. So if we're not looking to numb our reality or escape from our reality or distract from our reality, if that's not coming up for us, then why do we need to run to addiction? So numb, escape, and, and detract, distract, distract, distract. It are all things that you're running away from. What if you actually believe, what if you actually believe, actually believe that, that, let's say the food, let's say you believe that food gives you love, right? So when you're eating food, you feel loved. And when you're not eating food, you don't feel loved. 
So you're not distracting yourself. You think you're giving yourself something. You think that you're satisfying a need, right? So, but so you, typically that craving will come about after an experience in our reality where we feel unloved correct. and we want to escape that, correct. numb that, right. distract from it. So then we right. run to the comfort of food or the right. love that... Right. Or we're just having a rough day and we don't feel love. So we'll go eat something to fill up that hole that, that, that we're feeling, right? So we think that we're filling that hole. But what if you separate the idea that, that nourishment and satisfaction comes from food? Meaning you, you separate yourself from the idea that it comes from food and you connect yourself to the idea that it comes from within. Right. It sounds to me like both would be essential. I got to strip the drug of choice from the promise that I get, that I attach to it. And I got to uh, neutralize the um, toxicity of my environment. Yeah. And the black, the, or the black hole that you're trying to fulfill, to fill. Correct. I think every addiction is filling some kind of black hole, some kind of black, right? Some, there's something missing that you need. And so when you have that need, you're willing to go to the end of the, end of the world to fulfill that need. 100%. So I guess my question that's coming up for me from this modality, which you kind of put um, almost, you know, everyone has a process and over time we um, find others, but for you, like a kind of peak with this, what felt like, um, I want to say missing, but like language that I didn't hear that maybe I expected to hear was maybe like a spiritual type language, right? We're often in the 12 steps, which is um, has been transformational for me, huge, 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 in many, many ways. At the same time, it has not been um, a one-stop shop by any stretch of the the imagination. It doesn't deal with certain things, but I feel like it has a very grounded, time-tested framework to talk about um, healing. And one of the things that it, especially healing as it relates to something deep like an addiction, and one of the uh, fundamental beliefs of the 12 steps is that we need a spiritual solution to certain kinds of problems. So do you see this solution that you found? Is it one in the same as a spiritual solution? Is it separate from? How would you? Uh, yeah, I guess the only word you used was you said your therapist trained in spiritual psychology. But outside of that, I didn't hear anything that sounded. So so let's talk about that. So um, for Chaim Vital, who famously um, transcribed and, and shared with us the teachings of the famous Arizal. Um, he was one of the foremost Kabbalistic authorities of Jewish mystics and Kabbalists. Correct. The Jewish mystic and Kabbalist. Correct. So uh, a lot of the things that he explains about the spiritual worlds, he draws analogies from the, from the psychological world, from the inner psychological world of a human being. The reality is that our subconscious, our inner world, is very spiritual. It's not something you can touch with your fingers or, or feel like a desk or a chair. It's, it's a very spiritual inner world um, that we have. And when I communicate with my subconscious, I believe in communicating with my soul. And um, it's, it is a very spiritual psychology in general. To me, Another like, form of divination. No, not divination. Divination is really a, when you're asking some other energy or being other than yourself. Um, in, in my your case, your soul is in that. Your soul is just the the, the higher, just a part of you that's outside your body. 
Okay. So it's a spiritual experience. Uh, having your asking your subconscious to bring forward a memory, and then it pops into your head something that you haven't thought of for thirty years. Uh, to me, that's a spiritual experience. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and um, and so in my view, when I'm healing my uh, psychology, when I'm healing my inner world, I'm healing my spiritual self. I'm healing the, the spiritual parts of me that were stuck at a certain time and place, or the spiritual parts of me that are trying to take the wheel of the bus and commandeer it in a certain direction. So I, I believe all this parts work and all this clearing of judgments, um, all of it is very energetic and very spiritual. And I'll give you one short story to, uh, as an example. There was somebody who hurt my feelings quite significantly when I was studying in Israel when I was 13 or 14. Um, caused me some trouble. And for many years, I uh, I held that against him. I felt uh, uncomfortable about that and, and, and judged him for it. Um, at some point in my working through my issues and working through my stuff, that story came forward and I did work around it. And I really, I really cleared my beliefs around it and I forgave him. I, I let it go and I forgave him completely. This person lives in Crown Heights and I've seen him many times and there's always some kind of distance between us like i do my thing he does his thing we don't have any connection um let's say it was thursday when i did the work on this particular story and then i saw him shabbos on friday friday night or, or, or saturday and his whole demeanor towards me and his interaction with me was 360 degrees it was completely different than anything i ever had before like he was friendly and I was friendly to him too. Like there was just an open, completely friendly and, and open and respectful communication. And I was like, wow, because how does he know that I forgave him? How does he know that I did this work? That his demeanor and his, and his openness to me changed completely. So to me, there's no question, there's no doubt that this spiritual work has a big impact both on yourself and on the person that's involved in, in, you know, in the event that, that took place, whatever it is that you're clearing, that you're healing. It impacts other people too, and it impacts all of us. Because I think each individual that heals has an impact on on, on everybody else. We're all connected to the same uh, same source. So one one thing, as you answered that, one thing that did come to me is that it's in order for this work to work, right? The work that you're describing, someone would need to be grounded in a certain amount of spirituality. No, meaning a certain belief. You used, as soon as we spoke, you used the word divine providence, one of the first words you you said, meaning that's a, a framework that you've developed for the world at some point, that there's there's no accidents. Right. If I write a letter and I put it in a book, that's not an accident which page I opened up to. And if I say, if I ask the world or universe or my soul or whatever it is to say, when is the first time I felt this way? And suddenly a memory pops into my head, that's relevant, that's not accidental. So it does sound like it does take a certain amount of spiritual, like a groundedness in spirituality in order to access the healing that this modality has available to us, which is not a bad thing. 12 steps, it's the same thing. If you want to so, access the healing of the 12 steps, I would agree. you have to be grounded in spirituality. But go ahead. I would, I would agree that it can be helpful to the process, but I don't think it's a prerequisite. I think someone can use the, the, the modality and use this process, whether or not they feel spiritually connected or they view the world through a spiritual lens, 
Um, anyone can use this process to to bring up memories, to clear irrational beliefs, to to essentially reprogram themselves subconsciously, consciously, and using their conscious mind to reprogram the subconscious mind essentially. But you and you don't have to believe in spirituality. But I do believe that once you start doing it and start seeing the results of it, that you will come to recognize the spiritual aspects of it. Right. I've had several experiences that mimic exactly what you. Um, just described, where you resolved something on an internal level with someone that they had no conscious knowledge of, and mm -hmm. they interacted with you in like a, an, actu an actually different way than they ever did. And yeah. I have ones that, just in case someone's misunderstanding, because it sounds like yours came about through a physical interaction, so you can say, Oh, maybe the person saw you look at them in a different way. I've had ones where there was no, I wasn't, I wasn't in the person's, I didn't see the person. Someone who I hadn't heard from in years suddenly is on my, <laughs> suddenly is on my phone. Suddenly, he re, someone who refused to talk to me for a long period of time suddenly reaches out. Someone who, I have one example which I can't go into all the details of because, um, of their privacy, but. I had wronged them in some way, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, it was a female and married, and it would be completely inappropriate for me to reach out mm -hmm. to them. And in talking with my sponsor, he said, write a letter, read the letter to me as if I'm that person, and burn it. And I did exactly that, and I kid you not, within less than a month, this person's husband called me and said, this might sound like a weird request, but um, my wife would uh, would like to know if you'd be willing to talk to her about um, so, some things. Yeah. I checked with my wife. She was okay. I had that conversation. And something that was 15, 20 years in the background within several weeks of me writing this letter with my sponsor. Right. Yeah. There. Meaning, so what you're saying is, is that even if someone doesn't believe in it, they're going to start encountering something that feels yeah. something Most like it. Most likely, they will um, start to experience things. Like they'll open up a, a spiritual connection with themselves, which is their higher self, in my view. And that will bring the, certain things into their life, which will make it obvious to them that there is more beyond their own inner psychology. Um, what you're describing is also it's, it's essentially a form of spiritual communication and telepathy, where they receive their soul, their higher source, their, their higher self picked up your intention and picked up the work that you had done to resolve this issue that you had with, with this particular woman. Unbelievable thing. So the, the million dollar question, has this changed the way um, you, par you parent in some concrete, tangible, practical ways? And I ask this question not for the audience, I ask it for, for myself as it's starting to become, my oldest is four and a half now, so it's, when when my oldest was two or three, I wasn't at the stage that parenting was coming onto my radar. It was more the physical uh, parts of parenting that, you know, the physical needs are met. But suddenly I'm starting to see how, you know, interactions and my way of being is affecting another person. Not that it wasn't relevant three years ago. I just didn't have it as, I didn't feel it as tangibly. So I'm asking the question for... But well, that's going to continue to grow for you. As your kids get older, you're going to see that more and more, that everything you do and say has an impact on them. And they're recording, essentially. 
Um, but to answer your question, most certainly. So I'm going to start off by saying, like the Rebbe mentions a number of times, that there are there are no human beings that are perfect. There's no such thing as, as a perfect human being. Only God is perfect. And so, um, I, very clearly, I'm not perfect, and 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 I still have my things to work on, and I still it's still an ongoing journey of healing and, and getting better and better every day. Um, but that said, there's no question that my compassion, my clearing of judgment, um, my understanding has all evolved tremendously through the work that I do. If I find myself judging my children, it's probably because I've judged myself for the same thing. So if I go and clear that judgment, and then my child does that thing again that I was judging him for or her for previously, I'm going to approach it completely differently. I'm going to approach it with, with no judgment, with compassion, with care, with centeredness. Um, so as you heal yourself and you you clear the things that are getting between you and your children or creating things that are not healthy for your children, um, your the way you show up is very different and the way you interact is very different. Um, let, let me ask the question in a different way because um, that, I, that, that I kind of inferred from if you're relating to the whole world that way, you relate to your children that way. If you're going to be triggered by a guy in the street in synagogue or a guy in synagogue, then you're going to um, do the same with your children, most likely. This was a little bit of a different question, is recognizing that a child is in the absorption stage from zero to seven and recognizing that there are going to be beliefs that they take on that could be very unhelpful for the reality. And we can't avoid that, meaning that's going to happen. Even if you're, even if you were perfect, they're going to go to a playground where not all the kids are, are perfect there, right? So it's going to happen regardless of what we do. And then there are certain beliefs that are going to be taken on. But is there something that you can do as a parent that can avoid the need for a book this thick to, because it's it's not even the problem isn't even that it takes this much work. That's not even the problem. The problem is that most people don't ever engage in it. And they're just left with the problems from it. So is there some way you've found that in addition to be able to working through, working with your own parts and helping to relax some of those beliefs, can that be translated in some way to interacting with a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old is struggling and maybe do something there so that when they're in their 30s and 40s, they're not at the mercy of whether or not they encounter a therapist who can help them with this process and they have the willingness to do it. All right, so there's two parts. One is you've got to heal yourself. The more you heal yourself, the better you'll show up for your children, the less likely they're going to need a therapist or the less hours they're going to need. Um, <laughs> that's one part. The other part is build them up. Yeah, when you see your child and you, you see they're going through something or you see that they have a question or a doubt, yes, you have to acknowledge what they're going through. You have to acknowledge their reality and you have to be empathetic towards them, but then build them up. Find the opportunities to, and everybody, I think many parents struggle with this because their parents are often caught up in their own world and their own struggles and their own issues and their own challenges. And But do what you can as much as possible to tell them that they're great, that they're loved, that they're beautiful, that they're, that they're just, you know, good the way they are, that they're worthy, that they're deserving, that they're uh, uh, valuable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And anything you can do to build them up, obviously in a healthy way, you don't want to make them uh just get some kind of false sense of, of self but you do want to build them up in a very healthy way in a very encouraging and supportive way where you show them acceptance and you show them empathy and you show them appreciation 
So you're saying something important because what you're suggesting is, if I'm understanding correctly, you separated the process into two things. A is removing the negative and then B reinforcing a positive. Mm -hmm. So these traumatizing experiences you're saying are not only because of the fact that you went through a traumatic experience at seven and then a similar feeling at 12, but not to put words in your mouth, what it sounds like you're saying is that had there been an adult figure in your life who during that period of time was building you up, then those traumatic events at seven and 12 wouldn't have had, wouldn't have weighed you down in the same way. Exactly. So, so modeling, we spoke about the child being most influenced in the first seven years of life. They obviously continue to be influenced afterwards, but um, a lot of the child's behavior is going to, we become, in many ways, we become our parents. So in many ways, we, we observe the behavior that is modeled, that is acted out, and then we go on to take on some of that and act it out in our own life. So when, when, when the parent is modeling healthy self-regulation, when the parent is modeling healthy self-confidence, when the parent is modeling, uh, you know, sound judgment and 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 um, healthy leadership, and that's a very big one, I think, for for a lot of families. Um, that has a huge impact on the child and the child's ability to to deal with adversity, to deal with difficult circumstances. Um, they learn how to bounce back. They learn how to have self confidence, even if someone has a different opinion. They learn to become less codependent on others, but rather be more healthy, healthily independent. Um, so absolutely the parents modeling and the parents health, mental health and emotional health has a huge impact on the child and what they're going to have to deal with growing up. Okay. So I asked the, uh, t the $1 million question before now to the, the $10 million question, <laughs> um, in terms of work itself. So your primary vocation, and we probably should have addressed this, uh, um, at the beginning is you're a business owner today. Mm-hmm. Right as as I am, and that's your primary, um, and that's your primary focus. Mm -hmm. So, um, a in terms of the focus on these things, right, as it relates to detracting from the business, right, from a simple time perspective. So that decision to say, okay, despite the fact that I'm a business owner, and a business owner needs to often feels that they need to be invested, you know, 100% of their energy and 100% of their time in this endeavor, right? They're holding up everything. Mm -hmm. It's right? often feeling to, for a business owner to shift gears and say, I'm going to focus on this kind of work. I know I do it myself um, and I find the value in that and I've spoken to it, but I'm curious to hear like what that process was like. And then the correlation to that, the corollary of that is how have you found this work has translated not only into, I have no doubt that it's improved probably the mood in your office, right? Right. You're probably more pleasant than the people around you are more pleasant, but I'm curious. That's why I call the $10 million question. Like, have you found that um, your business, your um, financial life, your career, like has, has benefited in some of the practical ways from this work as well, or does it matter less? So those two questions, there was a lot there, I know. Yeah, so so definitely um, me being a healthier person had a positive impact on the people that I work with and the people I interact with. Um, when a person is not healthy, it usually tends to spill out on people they interact with. And likewise, when, as you get healthier, it improves. Um, as far as 
um, what we get busy with. My experience has been, and my belief is, that if we do the things that are most important in life to do, whatever comes forward, right? Let's say if a person has an argument with their wife and that, that, that argument or that difficulty needs to be resolved, and so they take some attention away from the business and focus on that, because that's what's coming forward to be addressed, that, that focusing on, on our life's mission or the things that come forward in life that need to that are, that are, that are our highest priority is what brings the blessing into the business. Um, we, the Rebbe teaches a lot about how, uh, you know, we should have, number one, we should have trust in God. Number two, that we should make a vessel, but not that the vessel should be too long or too big. Like if it's like a person running around in pants that are too long, you end up tripping over them. So if we, if we become workaholic and we put all of our focus and energy into work and to the detriment of other parts of our life, like family or other things that come forward, whether it's charity issues, communal issues that come forward that need to be addressed, then that has a negative impact on our, on our spiritual flow, on our financial flow, and on our business. On the other hand, when we do see what's coming forward and we do prioritize the right things at the right time, then God has many different ways to to help us out in business as well. And has this been your? That's been my journey and my experience. That's been your practical experience. Mm -hmm. Like you have not found because I know that the reason I ask this is because I know when I speak to people in business, either they're business owners or you know uh, an executive in a comp in a company where a significant amount of their brain space and life is consumed with financial success. Mm -hmm. they feel like this will detract in some way. And I've heard different reasons why, some from a time perspective, some from the idea that what propels me is my anxiety, and if I heal my anxiety, then how am I going to have the motivation to, to to keep pushing? Or there are many different... Right, so that's um, an irrational belief that anxiety brings financial prosperity. <laughs> At some point, something happened where this person took on the, the irrational belief that the more anxiety they have or if they live with anxiety, that's going to increase their financial prosperity or their financial flow. And it might motivate them and it might be something that they run with. But practically speaking, again, in my experience, in my perspective, and my belief is that that's not what brings the financial success. That might be part of who they are and part of what they're dealing with that they have to heal and part of them that keeps coming forward for healing. And hopefully eventually they will heal that part. Um, but ultimately success comes from God and from, from the things that we do and the things that we're supposed to do. And, uh, that flows into the business in different ways. Um, I'll share a quick story that relates to that. Maybe, um, at some point in recent times, I decided to be completely shut for all Palomites, uh, the intermediary days of the Jewish holidays that are very long holidays. Um, and I was kind so of that. So just to explain that on Passover, for example, there's yeah, you could be close for a day holiday. Absolutely. Four days, four days are not allowed to work. Four days are allowed to work, and some choose to be extra stringent and close for a full eight day period. Right. So, so you've done that. I took that decision to do that to to, to move. DNH photo is uh, is notorious. Famous, famously, famous. Famous. Probably all the equipment, which is. Uh, that you can see and that you can see as part of this podcast on my side came from being photo. <laughs> so it's working for them, but I, it's, it's a massive decision. So you mentioned being photo. So that's what helped me make the decision. So I, I made the decision and then I had some doubt in my head and I was thinking it over and I headed to a CHYE event, a Fahrenheit Young Entrepreneurs event that they had a couple of years, two, three years ago, whatever it was. 
and the CEO of BNH Photo spoke at that event, and his story was about how they keep uh, they shut down for the whole length of the holiday, and that they faced some major legal issues from the state of New York that sued them for some nonsense sales tax issue. And so they found a way to clarify the law to get the law changed and clarified uh, because they were told that the judge that received this case is absolutely 100% going to be, be problems for them. There's no way they're going to have a positive outcome with this judge in this court. So they went and they updated the law. They got the law with a whole team of 30 people. They got the law updated to be more clear so that the state couldn't claim false claim against them. Ultimately, what happened was on the first day of Cholomayad, this terrible judge threw everything out and and cleared everything in their favor. So the work that they did to resolve the issue wasn't even necessary. It just the whole thing was was closed in their favor on the first day of Cholomayad, and so they took that as a sign that this was in the merit of the mean clause on Cholomayad. Right. And so when I heard and that this story, is something that he's comfortable, I mean, it wasn't a closed setting that he spoke about this. I it was heard an open probably, setting. Got yeah, it. There were 150 people there or something. Um, and so he ultimately, um, so I, I took that immediately as divine providence that I had, I'm mulling over this decision and then I hear this story. So it's final for me. Um, and so I went forward with it and I've seen nothing but blessings from it. We've been closed. There's been a few holidays recently that were very long. We were closed for a significant amount of time, and you'd think by, by you know, the practical outcome of it would be pretty negative. But the reality was that the outcome was very positive. So, to me, it's completely um, it just validates and confirms the, the notion that when you do the right thing, uh, it, it kind of helps out. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So I'm grateful that you uh, accepted my invitation to. Um... Uh, I do want to share for this conversation. I do want to There was one part that we didn't address, which is how how to do the updated beliefs. We spoke about we spoke about how to clear rational beliefs. You go back to the situation, you see what comes up, and you clear that as an irrational belief. You um, you forgive any judgments that you have toward yourself or other people, um, and and you repeat that a number of times so it's clear. And then you find yourself interacting with, other, with people differently, viewing people differently, viewing people with compassion a lot more. And the last part is that you create a new updated belief. And so the new updated belief is usually just the reverse of the negative belief. So for, so for example, if a person took on that, you know, an irrational belief that they're not worthy of being of, of being treated with, with uh, dignity, let's say. So the updated belief would be, my new and updated belief is that I am deserving of dignity. I am deserving to be treated with respect. I am deserving of being um, spoken to respectfully etc whatever again whatever else comes forward as, as as a counter to that and you center it in your connection again if it's more spiritual you can do it this way if you're not so spiritual you can skip that part but for me i center it in my connection to god and the connection mm -hmm. my connection to my own soul so for example um my new fully updated belief is that i am worthy i am deserving i'm good enough and whatever it might be in that particular mm -hmm. circumstance and if I ever have any doubts or any old energy comes forward for me where I feel differently, where I feel that I am not worthy or I'm not good enough or whatever, then I can connect myself directly to, I can, I can feel that worthiness. I can feel that deservingness. I can feel that, that being good enough in my connection with God. And I can uh, draw that down into my, into myself, be feel centered, feel whole, 
feel good enough and I end up with Soho Migan. And so that's the, it's kind of like a, a hybrid updated belief and prayer that this is the updated belief and, and God should help me to implement it. And then I usually also breathe it in. So after I either, when I do an irrational belief, I breathe it out. When I do an updated belief, I breathe it in. Beautiful. And that's the process. And then I'll, I'll write it down and I'll go over it a number of times to cement it in. So in that book, you're writing only the new beliefs or also the old beliefs? So these are the irrational beliefs. Most of the updated beliefs I did not write down. I, I just, when I do the irrational belief, I already know what the, I, I do it in my head immediately. It's the inverse, right. Um, correct. I know it because I also, because I have experience with it, I know how to do it while I'm doing it. I can, I can actually do both at the same time. So I'll do the irrational belief and I'll, I'll flip it at the same time, but then I'll also verbalize it afterwards. Understood. This uh, writing thing I found, I mean, it's, it's a tool that I've been using for years and years to, to journal. I mentioned earlier that I was triggered by um, I was triggered last night by something with my wife and I immediately go to a journaling app that I've been using for 10 years. So on mine, it's more on my, um, on my phone itself. And I think uh, my first journal entry there is from 2013. And not that I've used it every single day. There were times in the first three or four years where it was probably five or six times a week that I was using this, sometimes multiple times in a day. And today, maybe once every two weeks, but it's a, it's a tool I use. And one of the um, most amazing benefits from it, which you alluded to here, which wasn't really addressed when I started it. And a lot of people talk about journaling, but this benefit came kind of as an ancillary. And you mentioned it, so I want to like underscore and highlight it is that you can go back later on in life and then read some of these things. And you're like, wow, like the progress is, is real. Like I wrote, I wrote this thing at some point I have, in addition to these, I also have many workbooks that I've used filling out information and I still have those at home and flipping through some of those workbooks. And it's like, wow, I wrote this, you know, 2014, 2015, I'm working through addiction. I wrote this. And sometimes I can read something from 2021, 2022. And it's like, wow, I wrote this. And those feelings that can sometimes come up, which for me feel like, man, I've been at this for so long. Why am I still struggling? And then, you know, you go back to one of these things and it's like, you may be still struggling. I may still be struggling, but in a very different way. There has been a lot of progress. These things work. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's an awesome benefit of, of writing and journaling. Yeah, many people believe that, that we come back to multiple lifetimes. And so <laughs> the way I look at it is that we, we have multiple lifetimes within, within a lifetime as well, right? So you have, 20, like you said, 2012, 2013, 2014, one <laughs> is its own life, its own existence. And then you, you do some healing and you're a new existence and you continue to evolve and, and grow and heal. Yeah. When I say, if you, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Yeah. And that, right? The idea there's, there's the possibility of dying many times over in this. Uh, okay. life. It's a beautiful, oh, the, the, you could also it's a beautiful it. perspective. Cause there's a, a, a part of that where I hear people talk about past life all the time. And maybe I've never had a powerful enough experience connecting me to past life. I'm like, okay, it's kind of irrelevant. Like I have this life, but what you're, what you're saying, you're updating in a very nice way is that there's past lives that we've had in this life. I was facing a particularly challenging problem in my life. Um, and, and I wrote to the Rebbe about it. And the answer that I got said that you, you are, as I've told you before, you're going to have this issue in this area of your life because it was something that was not resolved in a previous lifetime. And the things that are not resolved in a previous lifetime are the things that you have the, the greatest battle with in this lifetime. 
it's the things that you that that you have the most resistance to resolving. And so it's worth the effort and it's worth the work to continue going forward and and, uh, and resolve that. With, and, and I said, fine for two reasons. I said to myself, I'm not coming back and doing this again. But yeah, <laughs> right. That's what I say probably for two reasons. And if you have to come back, it's like this becomes a big one. Let's get it out of the way. Mm -hmm. And if it's not your lifetime, it's your kid's lifetime. So for people who that's too too hokey for, so yeah. someone else is going to have to work on this in, in another lifetime. Yeah. Again, Snare, thank you so much. I appreciate you accepting the invitation, and I hope this is the first of many for you, that you uh, share your experience, share your wisdom, and share your clarity with uh, as likewise. many people as possible and bring uh, bring healing healing to the world. So thank you again. Thank you for getting me started on this journey, and it's been cool how we've intersected in different ways throughout, and uh, today is no accident. So thank you. Thank you. Be well. Have an awesome day.